0: Podcast on Jack the Ripper and the White Chopper Murders. This is episode 38, Killers on the Loose, Eliminating the Suspects. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and joining the show today, from Ramsgate, Kent, in the UK, is author Chris Scott. From Charlottesville, Virginia, is Allie Ryder. From Neath, in Wales, is Gareth Williams. From Penshurst, Kent, in the UK, is Ben Holm. And the proprietor of JTRForums.com, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is Howard Brown. Thanks, everybody, for being on the show today. Over the past 120 years, naming someone as a suspect in the Jack the Ripper murders seems to have become a favorite pastime for authors, researchers, and speculators, armchair detectives interested in the Whitechapel murders. Even police officials who worked on the ground in the East End later, some in retirement, left writings about who the murderer of these prostitutes in London in 1888 may have been. From Leather Apron, named as a suspect in the days following the murder of what is officially considered to be the Ripper's first victim, Marianne Nichols, to Joseph Lis, who is suggested to be the Ripper in the 2007 book, The Fox and the Flies, dozens upon dozens of individuals have been accused in books, movies, and television documentaries as having been responsible for the Autumn of Terror. Today we will examine a handful of these suspect theories in order to determine if sufficient evidence exists to exonerate these individuals. And we'll also be discussing what criteria one should rightly use when not only eliminating, but when accusing a person of the crimes of Jack the Ripper. Now, before we get into some specific suspect cases, I'd like to ask our panel, what is the proper way one should go about eliminating a suspect from the list? Is it simple enough to just find mistakes in the accusations, whether they be contemporary police officials making those mistakes or best-selling fiction authors? Must we look at everyone accused and then work to establish a concrete alibi for the individual? Or is it a case of not proven and the person should not be accused unless there is enough evidence pointing to their guilt or that the accuser, like a contemporary police official, might have been in a position to know?
1: Uh, In order to truly eliminate a suspect, it has to be on the basis of a concrete alibi. Because if you've got an alibi, then that means it's proven that it can't have been them. Now, it goes without saying, of course, that several contemporary suspects can be safely ruled out on that basis, such as John Pizer and Jacob Eisenschmidt. Eisenschmidt was in police custody at the time of the murders, so it proved that it can't have been him. And more recently, you've had people like Neil Cream, uh, Michael Ostrog, and Prince Albert Victor all being eliminated on the basis of having they having cast-iron alibis. Now, then again, there are other suspects who can't be eliminated in the strictest technical sense, but who are sort of nonetheless connected to the crime scene only via a very spurious motive and invariably no link whatsoever with the East End. And there I'm talking about people like Sickert and Gull, J.K. Stephen, Lewis Carroll, Frank Miles, that lot. Uh, as much as you want to, sort of, say, completely Im- eliminate them, you can't do so in the strictest sense. And the only way you can do that is to provide a cast-iron alibi. Uh, so, obviously, that would be our first port of call, Estab- establish the, the alibi and then assess its worth.
2: That's very well put, then. Um... Of course, the difficulty we've got, uh, you know, apart from the so-called celebrity suspects, is that uh, the biographies of these characters are, are very, very little known, um, and the you know the historical record of the case itself, um, even though it's been extensively um, commented upon since, is very patchy, and there are big holes in the record. So, unless you've got someone like a, a, a J.K. Stephen or a Prince Albert Victor, um, to deal with uh, the chances of eliminating any old Joe, I use the word advisedly, from that time uh, has got to be next to, uh, next to zero. So we've got to I, be uh, aware. I... Sorry, Ali?
3: No, I'm sorry, I thought you had po- finished. Go ahead and finish, yours. No,
2: no I, I, I was just going to sort of sum up by saying that you know the hope of finding alibis for um, the majority of these suspects and these suspects that haven't even yet emerged is likely to be very, very low
3: I just have to say that, you know, I would have to disagree with um, the idea that the only thing that can eliminate a suspect is is uh, them having an airtight alibi. I think that that, of course, would eliminate them. But we I also believe that you have to look at what went into including them as a suspect in the first place. And if you have some of these suspects who have been um, made suspects purely on you know, fantasy or wish fulfillment or just the most absolutely inane theories that have been engendered in the minds of absolute crazy people, then I think that you can just sort of say, well, you know, logic would dictate that this theory as a whole does not hold water and that the theory itself is inaccurate. Because under those premises, if we can only eliminate someone from from the suspect roster based on them having an airtight alibi, then that means anyone living in 1888 is good enough to be a suspect, even if there's not a single shred or factual um, piece of evidence that would make it plausible. So I just think, you know, yes, an airtight alibi, they're out of the thing, but I think we also have to look at the logic of plausible, and if it's completely implausible then I think we can eliminate them as well, based on not necessarily it's impossible, but if it's so implausible as to be unlikely.
4: Yeah, I, I agree with 100% there, Allie. Um In the same vein, I, I, um, I question why we even have to find alibis for some of these people. Some of them don't even exist, as far as we know, like Warford and Fogelma. I have a, I have a list here of about 15 to 20 people that we could probably eliminate today b- based on, um, I believe, Ben mentioned Frank Miles before, correct? Yes, I did, yeah. Yeah, um, well, according to information I have here, in 1887, Miles was confined to an asylum due to his mental health. He was at Brislington Mental Asylum until his death in 1891, so he's completely out of the mix. And yet a suspect book was just released, I believe, within this year, the uh, Ripper... The Ripper Code by uh, Thomas Tuffill.
1: Tuffel, feel, yeah. yeah. He's been uh, alibi out, has he, as, as they say. He's, um, uh, he's definitely out of the running, as he that means. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Well. okay. <laughs> well, back to what Allie was saying, um, and I'll touch on this suspect briefly just in the context of her remarks, that a lot of people, when when they uh, hear of uh, fantasy uh, suspects concerning the Jack the Ripper murders, uh, hear about Lewis Carroll. Now, on the one hand, Richard wallaces I, th- I think he was the first one to propose Lewis Carroll as a suspect – had this whole anagram theory worked out where – Um, he was able to read in clues from Lewis Carroll's published writings that allude to the Whitechapel murders. Well, that's one deal in his book that that we can all just kind of laugh off and say, oh, we're not going to waste our time trying to prove that wrong, you know, because it's just ludicrous. But on the other hand, he said that on the nights of the murders in Lewis Carroll's diary, Lewis Carroll would change the color of ink he used, and it was only on those nights in question that Lewis Carroll would transfer to this other color of ink. Now is that something that we should try to establish should i mean in order to eliminate Lewis Carroll do we got to see this guy's diary for eighteen eighty eight to make sure that um, that 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 claim that of the change in the color of the ink uh, is incorrect or because a lot of these more ludicrous suspect theories are kind of elaborate. So sometimes we're put in a position to where we can laugh off some of it, but then there are others that make definite claims that can be investigated.
4: That that sounds uh, identical to the uh, uh, Dr. Bernardo theory where there's some dates missing from a calendar that he allegedly had.
0: How do we take those theories that are so ludicrous that they can't be believed, but yet the author claims certain statements of fact that can be proven one way or another?
5: Doesn't it depend on the, the sort of basis of the evidence you're looking at? I mean, I'm innately wary of anything based on numerology or anagrams because they are so subjective and there are so many different systems that you can use it's it's like, uh, I remember reading, there's a book called The Bible Code, which is so subjective that you can read anything into it. And once you get into the realm of anagrams and numerology, then to me that has very little, if anything, to do with evidence. Uh, even, even if you could prove that um, Carroll changed the colour of his ink on those days, that in itself, even though that would be... A a tangible fact in itself proves nothing. It's just it's one fact in isolation, because it can then only be backed up by things like anagrams and and subjective interpretation.
0: Ali, you were going to say something.
3: I was just saying that you know, for something like that, do we have to go and investigate his diary pages? no, I, I think there are some claims that are so ludicrous that even doing the bare investigation to prove them false is too much waste of any reasonable person's time. Could it be done? Yes, easily. But really, why bother? You know, it's, it's just one of those things that it's not necessary.
2: I think as well, we've got to bear in mind that we, we've got a, a very, very long tradition within um the ripper case of you know the dreaded (coughs) celebrity suspect or uh, if the suspect isn't uh, a celebrity then you know convoluted um, formulas and reasons and all very cloak and dagger stuff that people tend to weave into the narrative to make it sound as if this is a kosher ripper uh, suspect um you know and I think you get the worst of all worlds um in a book where you get a celebrity suspect plus convoluted logic in order to shoehorn him into a, a position of suspectability um I, I, I you know the alarm bells start ringing immediately with me whenever I get a sense of any of that happening.
5: Can I just add one other comment um i I, I think also we have to um bear in mind the uh, a commonly made differentiation between contemporary suspects those who were named at the time or shortly after the murders because those, those always seem to be given some sort of uh, precedence whether or, rightly or wrongly that's a different question but I think we've got to bear in mind that even even the contemporary suspects there is so much paperwork and so much documentation missing that even for the uh, the big hitters in the, uh, the League of Suspects people like Druitt and Kosminski, we really don't know uh, fully what the basis of the police suspicions were. I mean, there. I think you know, uh, perhaps folks don't realise that there is so much missing, even from the the big league uh, suspects. That I mean, that there's a whole file on Tumblety missing that uh, Little Child refers to. There's the private info that uh, McNaughton mentions. Um, I'm sure there's lots of documentation missing about K- Kosminski and the basis for h- him being accepted as a, one of the three that McNaughton mentions. Um, so I think, you know, you've got to be a little bit careful even about the contemporary ones who seem to be on a, a different level in a lot of people's minds. That There's, there's so much missing that any, any judgment we make on them is, can only be partial
0: yeah, I agree with you there, Chris. And also, people tend to dismiss contemporary police suspects because of mistakes made in in the memoranda or in other documents. Um, so modern-day researchers will say, well, if the police officials made such glaring errors in naming their suspects, then we just need to to, to dismiss them. Um The same way other people who are interested in the case would dismiss Patricia Cornwell's suspect, Sickert, based solely on the number of errors contained in her book. What separates the errors of contemporary police officials from the errors of Patricia Cornwell? Why are we so eager to accept Druitt and Kosminski as the top two suspects, in spite of these major errors made by the police, but we're so quickly to dismiss a suspect like Sickert because of Patricia Cornwell's mistakes?
5: I think it comes back to... It, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. The uh, I mean, the, the commonly mentioned errors are things like McNaughton saying that uh, Druitt was a doctor, that he was 41 in, instead of his, in his early 30s. But the whole... Um, you know, there's a whole tranche of, of presumably... Uh, once extant paperwork that we no longer have access to. So we simply don't know. I mean, you know, although, um, you know, the Norton Memorandum was written six years after the event by a policeman who wasn't actively involved in the investigation at the time, I mean, there are various explanations one can put forward. But the simple answer is we don't know. I mean, we don't know what the private info was that he had. And so there's a whole... There are swathes of information that simply are missing. So we don't, know, we don't know how selective history has been. I think we can make certain assumptions
2: about McNaughton's uh, selectiveness, and this isn't in no way to sort of um, you know, cast aspersions on him, because even uh, in his memorandum he says, I might mention three, um, not that these were the only three. You know, so it's not just the missing files or, or, or the missing private information on Druid, for example. But I suspect oh, okay. that there were many, many others. And uh, what I'm trying to get at here, Chris, is, is we are maybe seduced by the the little evidence that we have into thinking that it's somehow definitive and that they were I only three suspects. I
5: you know? agree. I think you've, you've also got to bear in mind why the McNaughton memorandum was written, because the whole, the whole thrust, as far as I see it, behind McNaughton's memorandum wasn't to try and prove that X Y or Z was Jack the Ripper. The whole point of it was to prove that Cutbush wasn't. And so, I mean, if you look at the, uh, if you look at the space given to the, the very brief resumes of the three suspects he mentions, uh, a minute part of the document, I mean, the main thrust of it, is listing the five women who he accepted as victims. Um, it was it was a response to the articles in the Sun about Cutbush.
3: And not only that, but you know when we talk about. Uh, the, the contemporary, you know, like the McNaughton Memorandum, which is obviously what we're referring to. We're not talking about someone who was, you know, right there at the time investigating the Ripper case, had the information on hand, was researching it, was going back and making sure he had every detail factually correct to publish this for one, money, and two, prestige. He was dashing off a memorandum, as has already been, um, address to address the cut bush issue when it comes exactly. to somebody like Patricia cornwell and why do we not cut her any slack one she was researching this you would assume that if you're researching something you make a base effort to get the basic details factually accurate two she's doing it for profit which holds it to a higher standard than just somebody dashing off an oh quick note and three um McNaughton made factual errors about age, about uh, occupation, things that, you know, I mistake people's names, age, occupation all the time. Uh, Patricia Cornwell, her factual mistakes aren't so much uh, transcription, you know, errors of, of, of fact. They are wholesale inventions of fantasy that she presents as fact and I think that's a very very different thing if you mistake a doctor for a lawyer well that's not it, it okay it's a mistake but it's not a willful mis, mis, um, deception it's not misleading somebody it's it's a mistake it's not a deception what she does is she creates a fantasy presents it as fact and that's deceptive and I think that's why we, we you know we have a, it, it's a different standard in my mind the, the willful Deception
0: as opposed to the honest mistake. Yeah, Since since, uh, we are getting on the topic of Walter Sickert, let's just uh, go over um, the accusations put against him a little bit. And and then we'll all get more specific as to why he should be eliminated from the suspect list. He was first identified as being involved in the Whitechapel murders, I believe, by Donald McCormick in the book The Identity of Jack the Ripper. Um, And I believe McCormick said that um, Sickert was a suspect in the Whitechapel murders. But it wasn't until Stephen Knight's book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, that Sickert steps forward as uh, having some direct involvement in the crimes. Patricia Cornwell, I think, misleadingly uh, suggests that she discovered – Sickert as a suspect, or at least she doesn't give credit to any of the prior writers who have named uh, Sickert as the Ripper, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but there was a book that came out in 1990 that uh, accused Sickert of being the Ripper. Sickert, Sickert and the Ripper Crimes? By uh, Overton. G- Gene Overton Fuller, right? Gene Overton Fuller. Yeah. And um, the Sickert story has kind of mutated from from its earliest beginnings to what came out in Patricia Cornwell's book, Jack the Ripper Case, Closed. There is some facts that have been established as as far as Sickert's whereabouts in the autumn of 1888. Uh, does anyone want to address what those alibis are?
5: Well, there is, there is one. Going back to what Ben said at the beginning about concrete evidence, the um – During the latter part of August and into September, um, Sickert very uh, often visited, I mean, one of his favourite places in France was Dieppe, where he used to go and paint a lot. And he was actually on a painting holiday with his brother uh, during August and part of September um, 1888. There is in existence a letter, which is unfortunately undated, but from the context, certainly to my satisfaction, dates from that period, written from Dieppe to his mother. Um, And I think that, so again, to my satisfaction, uh, uh, certainly clearly shows it on the dates of at least two of the murders that um, that uh, Sicker wasn't even in the country.
3: And I think, in response to that, Cornwall had some sort of ludicrous, you know, suggestion that he was jumping on the train, jumping on the ferry, jumping on the train back to London. Killing somebody, then jumping on back on the train down to the ferry, back on the ferry, back on the train to get back to the
5: Yes, he could yeah. have Yeah,
3: it, it, but it's like, come on. Why wouldn't he have just kill the hooker in France if he really had here, Why not do it right there? I mean, who's gonna travel several hundred miles to make sure that the hooker they kill is in Whitechapel? Yeah. It, there comes a time when the exclusion, you know, the excuses for your suspect. You know, it goes right into the absolutely ludicrous point of view, and I think at that point, with Patricia trying to say that it was tough, that, that, that it strayed into the plausible theory to the ludicrous theory. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. It's like a more extreme version of uh, Montague Druitt. I mean, I mean, it's it's argued that yes, he could have. Uh, made it back from cricket matches, but they reinforced the fact that it would have been very tight. Uh, and I think evidence that he could have done is very different to evidence that he did. And I think, uh, you know, uh, Sickert is a more extreme version of that, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, I think, I mean, on
2: that line Ben, it, it's, it, it's, it's probably worth being very aware that it, the, the, the possible can quickly mutate into the probable if you're not very careful. I think the problem with a lot of the, the, the so-called evidence against a lot of these suspects is that something starts off fairly innocuous as possible, and then before you know it,
5: it's probable, and then it's the goddamn truth. Um, yes. You know, caveat emptor. And... I think the, the, the I find with with suspect with suspect-based books, uh, as a general rule to myself, I find that the more sort of mental contortions or uh, series of coincidences, or the more Uh, convoluted the plot becomes in order to paint a scenario where where that person could have done the murders then the more the more suspicious i get because i mean it's even i mean if there's one person who on on paper can be cleared, it's albert victor because of the court circulars but you know i've even read accounts where people have looked up the times of trains from sandringham and they've worked out almost to the minute that he he could have done this and he could have been there But I I just find the whole idea ludicrous. I mean, it really is grabbing at straws.
1: Yeah, it goes back to Gareth's point about uh, could have mutating over time into probably did. And there's a kind of yawning
0: chasm between the two. Now, what Chris Scott, just for the sake of our listeners, is referring to is uh, the royal conspiracy that involves Prince Eddie, in which he is proven to have been having tea with the Queen. On the morning following the discovery of the body of Annie Chapman, which which would rule him out for that murder, and and there are other uh, um, the court circulars. I mean, that's not the only um, murder date that he's been eliminated from. I believe he's been eliminated from all of them, if I'm not mistaken.
5: Well, the the, the main the main one was the uh, the murder of Mary Kelly because that was actually a, 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 an anniversary of royal significance because it was Eddie's father's birthday. I mean, November the ninth was the birthday of the Prince of Wales. And Eddie actually gave the the main speech at the dinner that was held um, um, in honour of the Prince of Wales.
3: And I think, like, with what I was saying before, when we're talking about both Sickert, who is sort of tentatively related to the royal conspiracy theory and also him in isolation and also the royal conspiracy theory, when you deal with an implausible theory and then you deal with an implausible alibi, you know, that when there everyone taken in isolation it's only implausible it's not impossible necessarily but when you take how many implausibles are there before we just say okay you know what this is just impossible you can't have this many things that don't add up yeah and you have to you have to sort of like Look at it sideways in order to make it seem like it could be what we need it to be before you start saying like, you know, with uh, the sickert hole theory, the the very ludicrous. Her her whole thing is based on the idea that he was impotent due to this, uh, the penis malformation, uh, which is a great idea. If it weren't for the fact that he'd been married several times, he was divorced for adultery. Um, But he
0: had a daughter.
3: Patricia Cornwell knows more about what went on in Sickard's bedroom than his wives did, who apparently thought he was very capable of having sex with other women. Um, So you you take that implausible theory with the royal conspiracy, like we were going into, you know, this idea that They had to kill all of these women to cover up a secret. And rather than doing it in a very quiet way so as not to draw attention to it and doing it immediately. No, they did it in this spectacular fashion, drawing all eyes not only to the murders, but to the entire city. And they spaced it out over a period of months, giving everybody involved plenty of time to talk if that was what indeed they wanted to do. But no, this is how they went about covering up a secret. My, that was pretty incompetent. So, you know, you add <laughs> yeah. that, you know, that bit of ludicrousness, and then you just put it all in, and you're like, can't we just look at this with a degree of logic before we jump on that, hey, this is a really great theory?
0: Right. And just to tie these two together, uh, as far as their the um, errors made, I mean, I mean, it should be noted that Patricia Cornwell is working on a follow-up book to her Jack the Ripper bookcase close, Um, So we don't know what she's going to um, discover or, you know, come out and apologize for in this new book. But anyway, we're referring to her old book. And in, in that book, it says that Sickert had a few art studios located in the East End at the time of the murders. That's been proven incorrect. I don't believe he had an art studio in the entire city of London after something like 1884. And then back to the royal conspiracy theory that involves Prince Eddie and, and Gull. Um, it must be noted that the Annie Elizabeth Crook has been found to have not um, even existed and if it was this Cook person then she was not a Catholic. And you know, I mean, they I don't want to get too involved in, in in the things that disprove the the royal conspiracy only because they're out there the information's out there if you Y- you know, it... can I, go ahead, Chris. Can, can I just
5: jump in? Uh, Annie Annie Crook did exist, and uh, and she she did have a daughter called Alice Margaret in 1885, as as stated in the book. Um, where where the misidentification comes in is that in uh, in Stephen Knight's book, he tries to tie Annie Crook to an Elizabeth Crook who was uh, who was working in the shop. Um, near where Sickert worked, and, and the girl with whom uh, Eddie allegedly fell in love, but Alice. Um, but the the where the story falls apart is that um, and on Alice Margaret's uh, birth certificate, and she she was allegedly the illegitimate daughter of Eddie. The the birth certificate under father it is blank. Um, but I think you know you can start reading too much into that. But then the later uh, suggestions that she had some kind of um, operation done on her, some kind of brain procedure which uh, robs her of her faculties and that she then spent the rest of her life uh, in and out of institutions is uh, is nonsense. I mean, she, she did spend long periods in, in workhouses and casual wards and that's all been traced. But, I mean, that was no more than a sad... Sadly, large number of women and men did, uh, and that's how they spent their life. Uh, the, uh, all that ties in with my, my principal objection to anything to do with Sickert and the royal conspiracy is that ultimately um, it's like tracing a dog's pedigree, and, and ultimately anything to do with Sickert and anything to do with the royal conspiracy goes back to what to me is a hopelessly tainted source, which is Joseph Gorman. And that story was recanted and retold and revised and denied so many times um, that it always amazes me that that's the one that's stuck in the public consciousness. I I read something recently by Don Rumbelow where he he basically said, I just wish we could get rid of all this nonsense about the royal conspiracy, but every time the subject comes up, we have to recount the whole thing again. But I think it it comes from such a, a hopeless source. And then you get the later add-ons, uh, Melvin Fairclough with the Ripper and the Royals, so large parts of which I believe is since um, rejected. And you get uh, obvious frauds like the Abilene Diaries and the alleged photograph of Eddie when he, after he supposedly died. Um, that, you know, anything to do with Sickert, I think, comes from such a, a, a tainted source that I, I think we have to treat it with incredible suspicion.
4: I think the best that these suspect books do is draw people to the field. I believe that if they had written about some rank-and-file Eastender uh, book sales would be nil. But when they bring mm-hmm. in royal, the Royal Conspiracy or Sickard or um, you know the, um, the Diary, which I'm sure John wants to get into soon, um, they draw people into ripperology. So they, they do serve that, that purpose. I think the majority of us have been brought into the into ripperology through the May break or world conspiracy, or even Sickert. So with the bad, you get the good.
1: It is the attraction of the celebrity suspect, isn't it? Yeah. I just get the impression that some people sort of can't bear to believe that uh, the, the one and only Jack the Ripper just might be a local sort of uninteresting non-entity. Uh, and I think uh, quite a lot of people new to the field uh, have this kind of Image crystallized in their mind of a sort of gentleman Jack with uh, you know top hat and tails, and normally they quickly just. Go
2: If they don't think that it was a gentleman Jack, then you know the other side of that, uh, if you like, celebrity suspect syndrome, is that y- you get the the convoluted or extraordinary uh, uh, reasoning. Yeah, so you either get the celebrity bit, or you get the hopelessly convoluted cloak and dagger bit. And um, you know, Absolutely. I, I'm not sure which which, which one leaves me, leaves me cold, to be
1: honest. And, and quite often the two I, combined, you get, <laughs> you yes. get implausible suspects and, and the convoluted reasoning to go with it. So, uh, yeah. yes, I, think, I, think,
2: people I think, people think that they've got to think in that way or they've got to write in that way in order to make a suspect stick. And um, you know, as, as you alluded to there, the reality might be far more hundred.
5: But I think, if, if you, I think it's quite salutary. If you look at the story, as recounted, say, in the Stephen Knight book, this is going to sound an odd idea, but it's. I remember doing this when I was working on the Mary Kelly book. If you take the plot of the Stephen Knight book and you strip away all the aspects to do with Jack the Ripper, you end up with two things. You end up with an absolutely classic fairy story. Of the you know the humble girl being seduced by the prince and they secretly marry and she has a child who has to be hidden away. I mean it's almost going back to Greek myth. It's like a fairy story and you've got you know the the equivalent of the wicked uncles who spirit them away. And then if you if you trace through the implications for the person who's telling it, which was Joseph Gorman, and I haven't got a down on Joseph Gorman. I think he was a um, apparently a very gentlemanly. You know it's, uh, it's sad he, he he's no longer around to actually answer some of these questions but if you the you know the implication again if you think of joe gorman as a let's say a fantasist then the, the the necessary implication irrespective of the fact that even if the marriage had taken place it would have been illegal under the royal marriages act but the the implication as a bloodline is that joe gorman is actually the heir to the throne and that's to me it's, it's almost like you know the napoleon complex so if you put those two together, then I think you've got a much more sort of satisfactory scenario without all the Ripper stuff, and I think you can explain the book in that way.
0: Like I said, uh, if uh, we're going to move move along from the topic of the Royal Conspiracy and Joseph sticker. but if you would like to, uh, like I said, there's information out there um, about these the two most what I think are the most popular suspect theories on the casebook website. Uh, Stephen Ryder wrote a a good dissertation called Portrait of a Killer, Patricia Cornwell and Walter Sickert, a Primer, and also Wolf der Linden-authored dissertation available to read on casebook.org entitled The Art of Murder, which goes into um, some of the royal conspiracy, but mainly uh, the claims made by Patricia Cornwell against Walter Sickert. Sorry, I said Joseph earlier. Um, Now, let's let's tackle the Maybrick Diary here before we get into some of the... uh, Second tier suspects That I know Howard Brown w- wants to uh, Mention a few of those um, Just for the sake of our listeners The Maybrick Diary uh, Surfaced in, in the beginning part of 1992 When Michael Barrett uh, Presented it to a Literary agency uh, Claiming that he was given it in um, 1991 by A drinking uh, buddy of his Named Tony Devereaux And um, quite a to-do, to say the least, was was made about the Maybrick Diary. Who wants to address the uh, pros and cons of James Maybrick as a suspect uh, in The Ripper murders, Or the cons, if there are no pros. Anyone?
3: I can the cons. The cons are there is no other source uh, that uh, has been identified that, provides any sort of information about James Maybrick uh, being Jack the Ripper in anything other than the diary. The diary itself has a less than stellar provenance. I think it could be said to have no provenance whatsoever, except from the people who have brought it forth. Um, and so when you have those two things taken together, when you're only reference for including this person, In the suspect list is a book with a very shady, very dodgy origin. You just look at it and go, well, is that really worth including him in the suspect list?
0: Right. Does anyone else um, have any comments on the Maybrick Diary? This is a story that, uh, like the Royal Conspiracy and the Sickert one, that kind of changed over time. Initially, it was uh, a gift, like I had said, from Tony Devereaux to Barrett. Later on, it, it became Michael Barrett's wife gave it to Tony Devereaux to give to Barrett to give him something to do, and then his wife, Ann Graham, claimed to have been a descendant of James Maybrick from an illegitimate offspring. And the diary was in the possession of the Graham family for at least a half a decade. first seen somewhere around World War II by Anne Graham's father. Because there were competing camps in the Maybrick Diary saga who had their own team of specialists doing testing on the diary each of the teams seem to have come up with different conclusions, which unfortunately leaves the origin of the diary and the dating of the diary still open to question to this day. Can we conclusively eliminate James Maybrick from the suspect list before we know exactly when the diary was produced? Or, or is the diary just like a Lewis Carroll anagram in, in physical form that we can dismiss as as being ludicrous um, from the get go. I think you can I certainly eliminate
1: James Maybrick as having anything to do with the authorship of the diary. As for eliminating uh, him as as the, as the Ripper, well, obviously, you know, I'd like to do that as well. But um, I think so, noticing a trend recently. I mean, I think one uh, prominent professor went on record recently as saying that. Uh, James Maybrick is a plausible suspect without the diary, and that left me sort of scratching my head in disbelief, and um, and uh, that leads to the kind of grasping, grasping at, at other straws, you know, a letter allegedly being signed Diego Lorenz, which is supposed to mean James Florence, and uh, so it, it's as though these, these sort of uh, diary supporters are kind of giving up on the – they're kind of obfuscating the diary angle and now concentrating on other angles that supposedly make him a plausible suspect and uh, with unsuccessful results, I'd say.
3: So it just so happened that James Maybrook was the real Ripper, and then some period after that someone decided to create a diary in which James Maybrook was the Ripper, even though it wasn't actually James writing it. This is where I get into the how far can our credulity
0: stretch? Yes. It's yeah. just- well, <laughs> the dev- taking the devil's advocate uh, side of that coin, as painful as it, it might be for me, um, I, I have a feeling that some proponents of the diary would argue that Florence Maybrick had thousands of supporters um, during her trial who could have fabricated the diary in. Order to attempt to make James look like a worse human being than he actually was, in, in, in order to aid her defense. But why would they hide it behind and a wall in, just, in, a, in a house?
3: And, yeah, and then just sat on it and never. Or, he,
0: yeah, or it, yeah. Up, or it ended up in, in the, the Graham family. Some right, fifty years on, or passed passed down
4: outside the I think, family. I, I think it's similar in the vein what Chris Scott was saying about the royal conspiracy. It's a classic, classic fictional tale. Um, a man sits down to pen his innermost feelings in a in a in a scrapbook, and then he travels hundreds of miles away to kill prostitutes when he has him in his proverbial backyard. And then all these years later, this you know the whole Maybrick theory uh, develops. I, I see it as a way of keeping ripperology as industry alive. That's that's the way I look at it. I, I really don't get too involved with it. Personally, I know other people do. But um, that's, that's my take on the Maybrick thing.
2: Of course, the really sad thing about that is it, it obscures the fact that the Maybrick story itself is rather interesting. And, you know, the, one of the big bees I've got in my bonnet was about suspect-based ripperology is... Quite often, whether it's a celebrity suspect or even if it's, a, a, um, you know, a, a relatively damn-at-heel uh, non-entity, their life stories are actually quite interesting. And getting diverted into these uh, realms of fantasy it, uh, actually takes us away from some actually quite interesting history. And you know,
5: maybe the Mablet case is just one example of that.
0: Ahead,
2: Jonathan, Chris. can I...
5: Yeah. Can I? Can I, just, can I just say one thing, last thing about the, the Maybrick? Certainly. Um, I think, the scenario, uh, I think that the scenario about the diary, possibly having been written by a supporter of Florence, um, I find that hard to believe in that um, I read through the accounts in the Times and various other sources, and the, oh, you're right, there was a huge groundswell of um, sort of outrage after uh, the sentence, but um, I think a large part of that was based on the idea not, not, not to um, – would not be to fabricate a possible uh, mitigating motive for her having done it, but it was based on the idea that, in fact, he didn't do it, that uh, James Maybrick was undoubtedly a, a chronic hypochondriac and also was given to both, as, as he saw it, medicinal and recreational overuse of drugs, which we would now – not even contemplate taking, such as arsenic. Um, and I think, you know, the the, the, the basic um, the basic idea to mitigate the sentence was that, in fact, she hadn't done it and that he died of an accidental overdose.
0: Right. I agree. And the diary, for what it's worth, refers to his, his addiction, does it not? Well, it does. And I, but
5: I think... As, 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 a, as, a la, as a last comment, and it will be, I'm sorry I'm blathering on, but what I said about the sicket, if you trace it back to source, I think the same really to me applies to the diary. The, I know there have been tests on the ink and tests on the paper and all this, but I think that the whole provenance of the diary is so murky and so tortuous and so contradictory that, that you have to view the whole document with suspicion.
0: All right. Given that that we've eliminated um, popular suspects being um, the media darlings, being the Royal Conspiracy and Walter Sickert uh, and James Maybrick, who are some of the names that would like to see remain on the list? I would uh,
4: keep alive the the idea that possibly Aaron Kosminski, Montague Druitt, George Hutchinson um, or Joe Fleming right off the bat. those, Those four I would keep alive simply because they haven't been eliminated.
1: I, I would second that opinion as well. I mean, I'd say, I'd say uh, I think Howard's probably mentioned uh, three of, probably my top three. I mean, uh, it. I'm um, not as convinced about, but certainly Hutchinson, Fleming, and Kosminski would certainly be three that I'd keep there. And also some of the, you know, more obscure suspects. I mean, I think, you know, William Grant Granger doesn't get much airtime. And, uh, you know, I think there's mileage in that one. William Berry, maybe, James Kelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a bit more plausible than, than some of these kind of celebrity suspects that are, that are churned out from time to time.
5: What about Joseph Barnett?
1: Je- uh, yes, I mean, I, you know, pro- probably him as well, but not so much the theories that have been woven, woven around him. I think he's yeah. an example of uh, a suspect who isn't bad, isn't a weak suspect, but some of the theories fly to him, aren't as convincing, I would say. Yeah.
3: I would agree to keep them merely because if we don't keep them, no one will have anything to discuss on the message boards, but I don't necessarily <laughs> think that oh, makes them any more plausible.
4: Don't you, don't you believe it? <laughs> no, Ali, I, I believe that all the people that have ever been mentioned as suspects should be discussed and studied in the proper context as individuals. Yeah, virtually every one of them is an innocent man, and they've only been added to make money or uh, to enhance the industry of riperology by uh, adding you know, implausible people like, say, uh, Sir Robert Anderson, or maybe, you know, four or five people that don't even exist. But, uh, yeah, it, it's it's good to study them, but as to promote them as suspects or a representative of the type of, of the person that, who Jack the Ripper was, you know, I think we need to uh, uh, buckle up and uh, set some standards.
1: I'll cull the field a bit, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I
3: think one of That's- the worst trends that I've noticed now is the idea that, we should just, and, I, and I've seen this pop up periodically on the message boards over and over, is the idea, well, none of the facts have identified the ripper. So let's just dismiss the facts mm. and go for wild speculation. And that's actually what some people have said. Like, the facts haven't identified the ripper, so let's just disregard them. And I really find that that's sort of a trend that, that I think we have to be careful on. Because it seems like nowadays people are so wanting to identify the Ripper, which if you're actually logical, you know is never going to happen. We are never going to prove 100% conclusively who Jack the Ripper was for the very simple reason he's dead there is no proof it's not going to happen you can't prove 100 percent who he was so the the idea seems to be that we want to do it so badly that let's just engage in the wildest of conjecture and speculation disregarding all the facts because it's like the identification game is the most important thing when that's just it's a it's 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 chasing your tail
5: well, there was, a wonderful, there was a wonderful example of that recently. I don't know if you saw it. And I, the, the person who mooted it wasn't, um, you know, unpleasant. In fact, I helped out a little bit with the research. But this idea was put forward that uh, so-called uh, geographical profiling had narrowed down the most likely area where the murderer lived uh, to three roads. That was Fashion Street, Thrall Street and Flarendine Street. So there was this, this idea was mooted that if you listed all the males... Who were living in um, those three roads, and somehow magically Jack would sort of bubble to the surface. How, how he was to be identified wasn't made clear. But I mean, we were talking about thousands of people. Um, you know, I'm I'm all for new approaches, but they've got to have some they've got to have some some, some uh, fair to middling chance of actually producing something useful. All you end up with is a list of all the males who were living, however temporarily, in those three streets in 1881 and 1891. And you you just sit there and look at it and think, well, yes, what do I do with it now?
2: And he's I think it's some...
3: particularly... Sorry, Gareth, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say it's a case of he's in there somewhere, but I think you touched on something exactly. very important there. So exactly. That, pe- pe- we've got you know, a very, very short list of characters to deal with. Very short well, Sorry, Sorry, yeah, I was just going to say the number of people who are directly involved, or who are passers-by, or who are witnesses, is extremely short. I mean, uh, you wrote a book, was it cast of thousands? Um, But there are probably only dozens who are, you know, dozens of eligible men, if you like, who are actually involved in the case out of tens of thousands of potential men in the same age bracket living within a few hundred yards of each of the murder sites. And people lose sight of that. It's as if the people that we know about have to be, he's got to be in there somewhere instead of, you know, in the bigger pot. Uh, In in, in your census returns of Thrault Street or Lower
5: Dean Street. If you you think of the logic of of that construct, I mean, it goes back to what Ali was saying about piling implausibility on implausibility. I mean, you're assuming, firstly, that the, that there is any validity in the geographical profiling narrowing it down to three streets. Secondly, you're assuming that the killer would happen to be living in one of those premises on one day in April in either 1881 or
3: 1891. Yep. And I think in just generally when it comes down to suspects, suspects is the one area of ripperology where people who have a suspect – They they lose whatever shred of reason they ever had. And if you have a theory on suspects, people who are generally very rational, very logical, very fact-based people, when it comes to their suspect, they're suddenly willing to take all of these things on faith. Because it's what they believe. And they're very willing to disregard anything that runs contrary to what they believe. Even though they're very unlikely to let anybody else <laughs> get rid of anything that runs contrary <laughs> in, in other cases. Because it, it's a faith-based. And it's almost like arguing with someone about religion. If they believe, you can't argue facts with them. Faith has taken over. And it's only in suspect referology.
0: Right. Sorry. Delusion.
5: Can I interrupt, uh, Jonathan? That was my phone going. I've got a very important phone call. I'm going to have to ring off now.
0: No problem, Chris. Thanks for coming okay. on.
5: Uh, okay, I'll catch up with you during the week.
0: All right. Thanks, Chris. Bye, Chris. Bye. Bye, Chris. Bye. see Bye. Now, based on what, what you guys have been saying, tell me what the point is of having four people on Howard's list uh, of the best of the named suspects when it seems that everyone is agreeing that there 's a ninety nine percent chance that it 's one of uh, ten thousand men who we don 't even know their names well that 's why
4: we need to go to broadmoor that's well, not to stay there but we need to we need to, people to get from London <laughs> some of us some of us need to go to Broadmoor and investigate the records there for people after November 9th or even after the double event and see who was included there um, If they could ever get their hands on jail records, um, you know, those are the – go ahead.
3: Oh, no, sorry. For me, purely, what's the reason of keeping anybody on the suspect list? And, again, it's it's what I always said, to have something to discuss because – you know, even going to Broadmoor, which is probably a very logical idea as far as as whatever, we're sort of presuming on that idea that the only way Jack the Ripper would have stopped was if he had been incarcerated or committed. And we do now have documented cases of serial killers who just chose to stop. Um, they found channels or outlets elsewhere but you know we're we're a community who has an enthusiasm and we have an interest in this matter and everybody comes to it with a different reason for studying it some people it's purely the historical some people it's a drive to solve it and you know we can eliminate i could eliminate every single person off the suspect list as far as I'm concerned, but they're still keep them on. And and it gives us something to discuss. It furthers our intellect. It furthers our brain. It gives us uh, as a community, something to talk about just because I don't necessarily believe in, you know, God doesn't mean I can't discuss it with someone who does. So you're never going to convince somebody who believes in, in Joseph Fleming or or Hutchinson, cough, cough, <clears throat> you're never going to convince them that they aren't uh, the Ripper. But does that mean I can't sit there and have a conversation with them about it? No. You know, you're arguing with faith. We we can eliminate everybody off the list if we want, but somebody who still believes it, it they're still going to be on their list.
4: Do, do, you, do you folks think that we're at the point in the field that we should um, – not to serve as some kind of police force. I I don't want to make, I don't want to sound elitist, but when people introduce suspects such as McNaughton or Frank Miles, who was incarcerated at the time, don't you think that we have an obligation to bring up the facts about these people and to try to eliminate these suspects going forward? Because in 10 years, um, at some point, somewhere down the line on the Internet, somebody's going to read that Melville McNaughton was a suspect in the Jack the Ripper, you know, the Whitechapel murder case. If we didn't do anything about it, if, if people didn't say anything about it, more or less. Do you agree? Yeah,
2: I agree. I mean, um, if nothing else, it gives people who, who, who write uh, such things something to aim at. I'm convinced that some of them are, are written expressly with the purpose of winding people up. Uh, and I say "Why not if they want to fall on their sword in that way, and they they get a kick out of it but i don 't think we should disappoint them
4: right yeah, twenty years ago any any one of us could have uh, sat down and written a book about um i don 't know off the top of my head a, a Mr. mooring or a doctor merchant and probably constructed some kind of Maybrickian sort of saga, and it would have gotten they would have gotten away with it, but i don 't think that they can now, but yet we do see these um, these theories and these suspects being introduced in a case like mcnaughton for example i mean that's a that's an outright slander
0: back to what howard was saying about checking broadmoor well people that pump for james kelly will tell you that well here we have a guy who escaped you know why should he be dismissed? i know i think you did include him on your list maybe or maybe it was ben who included um James yeah. Kelly on, on the list So there are police suspects Who, who fit this kind of idea of, of a lunatic Out there But but also to touch on something you had said You know, okay, well, ten years down the road Someone's going to um, Read that Melvin McNaughton Was considered a, as a suspect In Jack the Ripper. Well, well, shouldn't we afford these other individuals Who are named, even if they were named by the police uh, The Druids And the Kosminskys um, the benefit of the doubt because they they were humans after all how, how much of a, of, a, of a rehabilitation of these people's characters can we uh, engage in as opposed to leaving them on any suspect list if there are not concrete facts to support their their candidacy
3: um I, I understand what you mean about the rehabilitation of characters, um, as far as you know their being on the police file. Uh, I think you tend to find a lot of times when you when you have sort of serial killers and you start looking back to the history and so, not all the time, obviously not but some percentage of the time you find that those names did appear in some way, shape, or form in the police blotter of the day in the police file. Very rarely does a serial killer operate. Purely within his crime and and in isolation and never pop up on the police radar for anything, be it, you know, sexual uh, impropriety or exposure or something like that. So I think that there's there's sort of a logical reason to give a glance at them as far as rehabilitation of their character. uh, Mm -hmm. I I understand that for a lot of people, the perception of how others see them is, is vitally important to them. So being viewed in a negative light would be seen as the worst thing in the world for them. Being that I am not particularly concerned with the opinions of others, you know, I I, I don't really feel the need to, to rehabilitate the character of anybody who's alive, much less somebody who's dead. So that's just my perspective. And I, agree it's probably not shared by any empathetic or compassionate person
0: i haven't heard gareth's list of who he thinks should be um still considered suspects in the whitechapel murders gareth you want to enlighten us there yeah i think um
2: uh, about the only one i'd include on there would be um uh, joe fleming um out of all the people that we've heard about, uh, he has the virtue of, uh, having such little biographical information, uh, at hand. But what little we do know about him, um you know, is all of a piece with, 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 uh, with him, you know, potentially killing Kelly at least, if not the others. It's a very, very weak case, but I've got to say that if that's the strongest case that I believe that we've got, then so much for the others. And what about George Chapman? Um, Chapman's an interesting uh, character. Um, I think we're probably going to do another full podcast on him because uh, his, his life was certainly colourful. Yes, we will. Uh, but um, I'll just say at this point that there's, there's nothing actually tying him to uh, Spitalfields, I'll be very specific, to uh, uh, Spitalfields in in 1888 uh, when he emigrated from Poland uh, sometime in 1887 uh, and and, and settled in in London he was way out uh, east in West India Dock Road which is down in Bow uh, or or, or the the sort of poplar area down there which is about three miles from from the Ripper's heartland Um, uh, similar in fact to uh, William Henry Berry who was another plausible suspect and known murderer who's, who settle again about the same distance away in, in Bromley-by-Bow around about the same time, oddly enough as uh, as Kozovsky did. But both these men who were both proven killers um, I-, I can't tie to the heart of Spitalfields uh, and their subsequent uh, acts of murder don't to my mind at least, tally with uh, those perpetrated by the Ripper uh, in those few short weeks in 1888. In fact, uh, radically different in, in both cases, in my view. So I, I, I wouldn't include those either.
0: I'll throw out one more name, and that's Tumblety. How, how should we view his suspect, Kennedy?
3: I think that because we like Stewart, we don't want to totally kibosh him. But <laughs> other than a fondness for Stewart, there's not a whole lot of reason to keep him on the list.
2: I, I, I think Stuart Evans would, would possibly agree there to some extent. So, uh, you know, um, there's a good example there of, of some someone who's done thorough research and who isn't too precious about what they've found. And I only wish that uh, other authors, um, you know, acted in a similar way. But again, you know, with the Kwasowski stuff and, and maybe some of the Berry um, uh, books by, by William Beagle, uh, you do get this. Uh, and um, similarly, with the Sickert books and, and, and the Maybrick books, uh, there's the same bunch of authors uh, harping on, a th- on the same theme in perpetuity, you know, dodging the criticism, coming up with ever more elaborate uh, means of, of, of avoiding that and working round the obstacles, but never quite letting go. Well, I don't think people like Stuart Evans or indeed Martin Fido or indeed Paul Begg are that sort of hung up. Uh, on what may once have been, you know, their specialist subjects, to to ever cut loose the apron strings, uh, if if evidence proves them um, wrong,
4: right. And uh, Mr. Evans has even gone on record saying that Tumbley isn't even his preferred suspect anymore. Well, there you go. Do, do we
0: know who is? Uh, no, I I don't know. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I wanted to uh, make the observation, and then we'll wrap it up here. And that's that um, for a group of individuals as yourselves who uh, study serial killers and <clears throat> have a wealth of knowledge about about um, serial murder crimes. I find it interesting that the main suspects you would pick for the Ripper murders would be men who were directly involved in the lives of a victim in this case. Barnett, Fleming, Hutchison. I mean, these, it would go against the grain of the popular idea of, of what a serial murderer of prostitutes uh, would be, having the most likely suspect be an individual who had a direct relationship with a victim.
3: Um, right. And I agree. It's, it's it, I, As far as I'm concerned, these are not the top candidates on my list. But, you know, as I said, I'm only keeping them on so we still have something to discuss. But no, I, I agree 100% that the likelihood that the killer was known to the victims is completely implausible. But the others who can weigh in better on why they chose to, to keep them on. Uh, well,
1: I mean, a- the, I- the idea of, uh, of uh, the killer being known to some of the prostitutes isn't, isn't implausible at all. I mean, we know Ridgway was known to some of his victims. We know that uh, uh, the same was true of uh, Arthur Shawcross. And uh, again, I mean, there's precedent for other serial killers uh, uh, dispatching uh, victims known to them, you know, uh, John Christie, uh, you know, Nathaniel Code and Ed Kemper. I mean, so there is precedent in that regard. I mean, so I I don't think that's, uh, you know, outlandish or uh, uh, in any way militating against the candidacy of those three mentioned. But, uh, you know.
3: But when you talk about them being known, they know they're known generally as being in the air. When we're talking about prostitutes, not like Kemper who killed his mom or or something like that. But when we're talking about prostitute killings, it it generally comes out that they're known as a person who cruises for prostitutes, not necessarily. In the realm of, say, Barnett, who lived with Kelly, or um, some of the others, Joe Fleming or Joe, who've, who've been posited as being her old lover. It's a different kind of relationship when they say the prostitutes are, the killer is known to the prostitutes. It's not someone who's been living with them, been associating with them, been involved in an ongoing, you know, sort of relationship. Which, again, nothing's impossible when it comes to this. It's just not necessarily the plausible yeah, and I, think I
1: mean, it's the kind of that there's no rule that says, uh, you know, he couldn't have uh, uh, lived, with Flynn, uh, uh, lived with lived with Kelly. I mean, there's no sort of uh, rule that says uh, any serial killer who uh, knew one of the victims, um, you know, uh, can't be a killer. And also in the case of Hutchinson, I mean, we only have it on his dubious authority that he knew, uh, he, he knew Kelly to the extent that he did. So, you know, it's equally plausible that he could have been one of uh, uh, you know a sort of Steve Wright or, a, or an Arthur Shawcross just somebody who was a kind of passing nodding acquaintance so I True. think someone like that is very plausible to me uh, someone who was a, a nodding acquaintance vaguely familiar with the lives of the prostitute and had perhaps used Kelly's services on occasion right. uh, the reason, you know, go, ahead,
4: go ahead Howard I, I, I'm sorry the reason why I included because drew Kegruitt Hutchison and Fleming is A that they are the best of the bad lot um, not that Hutchison and Fleming are necessarily bad, but if I, I look at it this way, if the McNaughton Memorandum had been a little bit more expansive and a little bit more elaborate and had nine suspects on there and we could only eliminate Ostrog from it, then we would have eight suspects until they're eliminated to study. So that's why I would include Kozminsky and Drew not necessarily because they're they're good candidates there is any evidence whatsoever that links them to the uh, to the murders but we haven't completely eliminated them that's that's my rationalization for having them on there
1: i think that's a good rationalization you know i mean uh, we haven't had any compelling reason to to rule them out and uh, that the police suspected them for some reason so for that reason uh, uh, they merit further scrutiny uh, i like to think that uh, you know In my lifetime, perhaps some of these suspects can be uh, uh, given an alibi. I mean, I'd love to see that happen, for example, for Druitt or or Maverick or even Tumblefield in the long run. I mean, that's why, uh, despite the implausibility of certain candidates, uh, continued research into them is encouraged for that reason. It could potentially lead to an alibi.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, if nothing else, you start to learn more about these people. You know, like I said a little while back, um, the history is is often more interesting um, than the mystery, so to speak.
4: That's that's true. And in in the case of one particular suspect, uh, Robert Stevenson, um, Mike Koval has uh, unearthed some information that his brother had more run-ins with the police than Donston ever did, as far as we knew. So that that's how um, that goes back to that rehabilitation thing as I said as I mentioned before the, the, all these all these individuals are innocent and by researching them we find out more about them and it, and it makes the case more um, there's a wealth of information and it's, it's more entertaining and in the case of Stevenson uh, we're, we're finding new stuff out every week it seems
2: it makes the whole thing more three-dimensional doesn't it somehow which is exactly, yeah which is welcome in, 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 in a field where, for the best part of a century, everything was one dimensional it was That's right, you know, name your suspect, and then build up the evidence beneath him um, it, right. it 's
0: starting to change now, okay, um, anyone have any final thoughts before we call the podcast?
4: Yes, I want to put the uh, gravestone on the following individuals okay okay, Alonzo Maduro. Portuguese cattleman, Fogelma, Mr. Mooring, and Dr. Merchant. Uh, there's no evidence that any of them ever existed, except for the uh, Portuguese cattleman.
1: It's a generic, it's that a generic easy. Portuguese. It, it, I love that. Not
0: specific. <laughs> I agree, Howard. No,
1: I think they should. Uh, I think they should be struck off the list forthwith.
0: Okay, and uh, one more thing, um, and I forgot to mention, what about Jill the Ripper, anyone have any opinion on um, on that one, that, that's, that's another, it's almost a celebrity uh, suspect in her own right. Um, I, know, I know some
4: rough women, but I don't know any of them that could do that, or the, um, the unhappily named Olga Cherksov.
0: Right. Uh, yeah,
4: I, I would eliminate them.
0: All right, that's it then. Well, thanks everyone for being on the show today. And that was RipperCast, episode 38, Killers on the Loose, Eliminating the Suspects. I want to thank everybody for being on the show today. That was Chris Scott, Allie Ryder, Howard Brown, Gareth Williams, and Ben Holm. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders available at the website www.casebook.org slash podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments for myself, or any of the participants on this podcast feel free to email the show at rippernet@mac.com. at mac.com. i want to thank everybody for listening and we'll see you next week